God, that's what we wish to hear this season. Oh, if our ears could pick up the strain, the echoes of that distant choir once again. As we gather now with Holy Scripture, teach us, dear God. Grant us meaning in this season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what? We've spent the entire fall in the heart of the New Testament. I've been blessed with the fourth gospel. But variety is the spice of life. We need to move out of the New Testament. And so beginning right now, we're going to go to the heart of the Old Testament. And a new series, a little mini-series, three-part mini-series. Put it on the screen for you. Christmas with Daniel, we're calling it. We're going to that ancient prophet. Three times we'll go to it. We're, we're exploring for three majestic titles given in Daniel to the God who incarnated himself in Bethlehem's manger. Three times we'll go. We're going to turn to prophecies in this mini-series that were written at the earliest, 500 years before he even came. There's something fascinating. There's a, there's a, a, a fascinating statistic on Old Testament messianic prophecies that I want to share with you with an accompanying illustration. In fact, I, I uh, share it, include it in my new book, The Chosen, which has come out just a few weeks ago. And I want to hit the pause button right here. And I do this shamelessly, but I do it uh, humbly as well. I have been grateful for the response to this little book. It's a devotional book. Page a day through 366 days in 2012. Somebody came to me last week and said, Dwight, it's all sold out at the, uh, the ABC in town. By the way, if you go to look for the book and you can't find it where you're going, Amazon.com now is carrying the book. But I need to say a word about an individual who has nearly single-handedly organized the local and the national response to this book. And I'm talking about Pastor Esther. She has just plunged into this, and I, 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 I'm a bit dazed by it all. In fact, I stepped into my executive assistant, Sherry Davis's office, just before Thanksgiving, and I saw this box of mailings. And I said, well, what is this? She said, oh, it's just a little car we're sending out. So I picked one up. I said, well, let me check it out. And popped it open with the tape shut, but then I realized that it was that card being sent to you. And what can I say? It's true in that card, as it states, the book is dedicated to you, the Pioneer Memorial Church. There's a little paragraph there, and I'm not going to read it. But on the dedication page, it says, dedicated to Pioneer Memorial Church. And I want to read in your hearing the text that... God gave me for this dedication page, and I'll put it right on the screen. It's written by a pastor. It's written by an apostle named John. Elderly John at this time, this is a short little letter. It doesn't even have a chapter. It's just a few verses. But he opens the letter with these words. And for me, they, they, uh, the cap, they describe my heart for you. John writes, the chosen lady. The book is about the chosen. The chosen lady and her children. So I think of this congregation 
Our children are gone right now, the university students, but they're the children. Here's the chosen lady, the chosen lady in her congregation whom I love in the truth. And that is the gospel truth. It is such an honor to serve you in this parish. The chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, by the way, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And so this book is dedicated to you. And I hope it will bless you. In fact, this is my prayer. This is the last thing I'm saying about it. And this is the only thing I've said about it uh, since this book has come out. But I am earnestly praying that God will use the chosen to bring what I believe is the Bible's breathtaking portrayal of His relentless love and truth. I'm praying He will bring that portrait to every man, to every woman, to every young adult, to every teenager, to every family in the new year. And by the way, in the church and out of the church, it doesn't matter which you are. I'm praying that God will use this little book to draw every reader close to his heart through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I pray, I pray that you would pray with me that same prayer. All right. Take the pause button off. Now, on, on the page for August 3 in this next year's devotional. I shared a fascinating statistic and illustration I got from uh, James McDonald. His book, God Wrote a Book. His book is about the Bible. Listen to this. There are 61 major messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. All right? They're predicting the coming Messiah. 61 of them. Statisticians have calculated what the probability would be if only eight, not all 61, if only eight of those prophecies could naturally come true. What would be the probability? And I'll put it on the screen for you. This is the probability. Ten to the 17th power. Now, do you know how big that number is? That's a one with how many zeros? Seventeen zeros. Let's put the number up. That's 100 quadrillion. You would have a one in a 100 quadrillion chance of eight of the 61 prophecies coming true. Now, that number is so massive, we don't understand it. Unless America's debt keeps getting higher, and then eventually, of course, we'll all understand what 100 quadrillion is. So, James McDonald uses this illustration. He says, let's imagine that you take the state of Texas, all right, the Republic of Texas, and you cover Texas with two feet high of silver dollars. Okay, can you imagine that? Wouldn't you just love to wade into that? Well, we're going to give you a chance. All of Texas is covered with two feet high of silver dollars, and then we blindfold you, and we push you out into Texas with this, with this instruction. Just wade out into those silver dollars and please find the one silver dollar that has a red dot on it. That, the chance that you would find that is the same probability that eight of the 61 Messianic prophecies could come true. But ladies and gentlemen, we're not dealing with eight. We're dealing with 61 of the 61 Minimum of 500 years in advance of the birth of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem. So in this little mini-series over the holiday season, three times we're going to the ancient prophet Daniel. We're looking for three majestic titles embedded in Daniel. 500 years before Jesus was born. Let's go with number one. Open your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 8. If you hang around our community of faith, you may recognize that Daniel 8 happens to be that chapter from which we derive our self-identity 
as an apocalyptic movement. So it's a familiar chapter to a bunch of people. I want to go to Daniel chapter 8 because tucked into that chapter, here it is, this breathtaking title. Daniel chapter 8. You didn't bring a Bible. You're going to, you're going to want to see this. It, grab your pew Bible. It's page 603 in your pew Bible. 603 in your pew Bible. Those of you who are watching on live streaming right now, wherever you are in the country, we're delighted that you are with us. Grab your Bible. It can't be far from your computer right now. Grab that Bible. Let's go, let's go into this together. All right. Daniel chapter 8. Let's pick it up in verse 15, please. Then it happened. I'm in the New King James Version, by the way. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. He's just come out of vision. When I had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me, shh, one Whoa, he said, having the appearance of a man. Not a man, but looks like a man. Verse 16, and I heard a man's voice, somebody else's voice, sounds like a man, between the banks of the Ulai, which is a river nearby, who called to this being standing in front of Daniel and said, Gabriel, ah, we know now who it is. It's Gabriel standing in front of, standing in front of Daniel. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So, verse 17, he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Whoa, Daniel, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. This is not now. This is, this is, this is at the end. You're gonna, you're gonna be, you have just been shown a sweeping panorama that takes us to the end of the world. Gabriel. Hey, listen, we did a mini-series, didn't we, this spring? Uh, the Gospel According to Gabriel. So we've unpacked Gabriel together. Just a reminder who Gabriel is. He is the covering cherub. Remember the ark? Remember the, uh, the gold piece of furniture? Two angels, their wings touching, symbol of the throne of God. God has two, two covering, two personal, personal angels, guardians, standing beside him. Lucifer was one and Gabriel was the other. Lucifer fell in rebellion. Gabriel stepped up, highest position. This is the Gabriel. By the way, Gabriel, his name only appears twice in the Old Testament. And yet three times in this little miniseries, we will keep bumping into him. Only twice. Here and one other place in Daniel, actually. But at the Christmas season, we need to remind ourselves, Gabriel is the Christmas angel. You think about it. Gabriel is the angel who shows up, you remember. When old man Zachariah is burning incense there, it's his turn. And, and the sun, there's this angel. That's Gabriel. And he says to Zachariah, I stand in the presence of God. Almighty God, I stand beside his throne. That's the Gabriel, by the way, who also shows up to little teenage Mary, virgin Mary. And he says, oh, blessed of God, I have news for you. You're going to be the mother of God. She could have said no, but she said yes. This is the same Gabriel, by the way, who hovers in midair over that gaggle of petrified shepherds who are staring as all of heaven bursts into that choral arrangement of glory to God in the highest. Saint. He's the Christmas angel. But he's also the apocalyptic angel. He's the angel that is a personal tutor sent by God to be the tutor for Daniel. And guess what? God sends the same Gabriel as a personal tutor to John. In fact, John opens up his book and he says, Christ sent his own angel to me. I got this from Gabriel. Same angel. Christmas angel. Apocalyptic angel. I like the way one commentator describes Gabriel. He says, Gabriel is the prime minister of heaven. Now, look, we, we don't have a parliamentary uh, a system of government around here. But who's a prime minister? A prime minister is appointed by the king or the queen to represent the affairs of the kingdom wherever that prime minister goes. Gabriel is the prime minister on this planet for the kingdom of heaven. He's the highest created being alive. Wow. 
God only sends the best when the message is this urgent. And so Gabriel shows up. Ah, let's go. So, verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me. Remember, now we're looking for this majestic title. As he was speaking with me, Gabriel was, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Often happened to prophets this way. But he touched me and he stood me upright. And he said, verse 19, look. I'm making known to you what shall happen in the, in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. I'm, re, I'm reminding you, Daniel, this is a vision that takes us to the very end of human history. Verse 20, the ram which you saw just a moment ago in your vision, having the two horns, those horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. And then the male goat is the kingdom of Greece that you saw. That large horn between his eyes is the first king. And then it broke. Alexander the Great, 32 years, drunken stupor, gone. Kingdom divided into four parts. Gabriel says that four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. But he goes on in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. Ooh, something's happening here. Verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. This little horn power, obviously a, a major military dominion. What's going on here? Now, interestingly, Gabriel doesn't tell Daniel who that power is. But look, at any history book worth its salt will tell you that in, in the Mediterranean basis, you have the Babylonian Empire, then you have the Medo-Persian Empire, then you have the Kingdom of Greece. And what is this next one? Every history book tells us it is the Roman Empire. Gabriel has just described to Daniel in verse 24, the military might of Rome, iron fists, rules the Mediterranean world. Wow. But... There is a radical shift now. Watch this. Just, just a subtle shift. Verse 25. Through his cunning, this little horn, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. Hit the pause button right there. This political, this military power subtly now is shifted to a religious spiritual power. You say, do I don't say anything about religion and spiritual there? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's all there. Let me show you. Paul, who takes this straight out of Daniel 8. The Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. He's writing to us. For that day, that's the day of Christ's coming. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, oh, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, whoa, who opposes and exalts himself above all, there it is, he took that right out of Daniel 8, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, this power, sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Oh, there's no question. We have seen Rome move in this, in this mysterious transition from a military political dominion to a religious spiritual dominion. What's happening here? Well, we don't have time. We didn't come to this passage to unpack all of this. Let me, however, just share the words of an Englishman. Cut to the chase. 1651, Thomas Hobbes. Those of you who are into philosophy, remember the name Thomas Hobbes, political philosopher. He wrote the great book Leviathan. 
1651 is when it was published. And in that book, he makes this pertinent statement. Put it on the screen for you. And if a man consider the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion, what we would be calling here this, this, this fifth power, this little horn power, and if a man consider the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive, now notice this, that the papacy is no other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. That is very graphic language from 1651 saying what every historian that notices the sweep of the Mediterranean that after pagan Rome collapsed, there was another power that came up and took the same dominion, only exercising it now in a religious context. Hobbes calls it the papacy. But we didn't come here to study that. I want you to notice... Notice this title, but it's, we have to get the context. Now comes the title. Read verse 25 again. Through his cunning, this power, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even arise against... What is your title? What, what title does your Bible say right there? He shall arise against the what? The prince of princes. He shall arise against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. Can we put that on the screen? And he shall be broken without human means. And then verse 26. We'll give them a chance to catch up with us. Verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision... For it refers to many days in the future. Did you catch that? Prince of princes. So who is this prince of princes? In the Hebrew it reads, Sar Sarim. Who is this Sar Sarim? Prince of princes. Daniel is actually uh, uh, using a literary device to, to create a superlative. It would, it would be like you coming up to your mother this Christmas and saying, Mother, listen to me carefully. You are the mother of all mothers. Is that a compliment or not? Of course it's a compliment. That's huge. Prince of princes. Daniel, it's, it's three times, it's a favorite little device of his. It, he, he speaks of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 as a king of kings. And then he speaks of the God that the, this little horn power blasphemes in chapter 11 as the God of gods. But right now, prince of princes. Who is this prince of princes? The clue actually right here. Just turn a page back. It's in the vision itself. Just turn to, we've got to find out. Verse 11 of Daniel chapter 8. Who is this? Here's the key right here. Daniel, Daniel 8 verse 11. He, this little horn power, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Whoa, there's that sar word again. Prince. And by him, the little horn, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of the prince's sanctuary was cast down. No guessing now. This is a religious power. He is exercising his power against the prince of the host. That little title, prince of the host, is, is, is extremely unique. It's only used twice. Listen to this. Only twice in the Old Testament. Once here. And then once in a very familiar story. You remember this story, but I want you to see it in your own Bible. So let's just go back to Joshua. The children of Israel have just, on dry ground, marched across the Jordan River. Forty days of wandering are over. They're moving in now on Palestine. 
And the first obstacle is Jericho, the walled city. So go back to Joshua chapter 5. In the Pew Bible, that would be page 152. Oh, I love this story. It's just a short story, but now we know, because this is the other place the title appears. This is Joshua chapter 5, verse 12, verse 13, rather. Joshua is out. It's afternoon, I'm imagining. He's in a forest, somehow looking, overlooking Jericho. He's not down there by the city itself, but he is contemplating, can we do this? God has said, take this city first. He's deep in prayer. So this is... This is uh, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. He's not under the wall. He's at a safe distance. But he can see Jericho. That he lifted his eyes. So his eyes have been down. He's deep in thought. When you walk deep in thought and nobody's around, you're looking down. Every time you're looking down. He lifts his eyes now deep in thought. And looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn and in his hand. It's a warrior. Drawn sword, standing right where Joshua is headed. And Joshua, my heart goes, my, my hat is off to this courageous man. He grabs his sword. Instead of walking backward, notice this. And Joshua went to him. He goes up to the warrior who's standing there with his sword. And he asks the question, are you for us or against us? You for the enemy or for us? And that tall warrior looks into the face of this human warrior. And he says, neither. No, verse 14, but as commander of the army of the Lord, there it is, Sar, prince, it can be translated prince, as prince of the host, singular, of the army of God, I'm here. And Joshua, in that split second, realizes in whose presence he now stands. And once you know, what do you do? On your face. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped, and he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army, there's that title again, Prince of the Host. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua's face to the earth rips those sandals off and throws them behind him. Amazing. Didn't hit me till this week as I'm brooding over this. Joshua's mentor, his predecessor. Do you remember the name of his mentor and predecessor? Who was it? It's Moses. Amazing that God comes to Joshua as if he now affirms Joshua. You're not, you're, you're not an accident. I have put you where I need you now. And all of us need that reaffirmation as we journey through this life. You are where I need you now. He gives to Joshua the identical calling that he gave to Moses. Only with Moses, it's this exploding burning bush. Same command, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Moses, same response as Joshua, face pressed into the earth. Moses calls out. And when the people in Egypt ask me, who has sent me, what shall I tell them? And then that sonic boom of a voice out of the roaring flame cries out, you tell them, I am has sent you. Who's the I am? When this same Jesus that the children a moment ago sang about, did you hear, Mary, did you know the I am 
Who is the I Am? We found out in the last Word series of the fourth Gospel just a few weeks ago. John 8, verse 58. What did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I Am. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. Incontrovertible. The being who's called Prince of Princes is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word who will be made flesh and be born in Bethlehem. That's a title for Christ. Tsar, Tsarim, Prince of Princes. Whoa. Say, oh, so what, Dwight? I mean, it's great. Glad you taught us that. Who cares? What's the big deal? Ah, here's the big deal. Because Prince of Princes is his title, that singular title reminds us That He is the God, not of one Advent, but of two Advents. Look, ladies and gentlemen, come on, brothers and sisters, please. When Christmas is wall-to-wall as it has become of late, and I tell you what, it is an act of divine grace that we can make it to the actual event itself in commemoration. It's just, this, 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 it's just non-stop. When Christmas is wall-to-wall, as it is in our culture here in the West, yeah, yeah, hey, it's not a big deal. I can think about the first advent advent, all the time. But the danger, the huge challenge for a worshiping community is that they will become so preoccupied with the first advent that they will ignore and forget number two. This title will not let us forget. William Stringfellow, an American lawyer and social activist, I came across an essay he wrote called The Penitential Season. Fascinating, fascinating. And I'm going to share it with you. It's in my blog, by the way, in the bulletin and on our website today. But I want to share it with you here. Put the words, uh, b- before he put the words up, Stringfellow is bemoaning the loss of the sense of the advent in America. This is the Advent season. All the churches, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, the Advent season. All right? So he's bemoaning this. So put the words, put the string fellow on the screen now. For all the greeting card and sermon rhetoric, this lawyer writing, I do not think that much rejoicing happens around Christmas time, least of all about the coming of the Lord. There is, I notice, a lot of holiday frolicking, but that is not the same as rejoicing. Pause right there. There's a whole lot of holiday frolicking going on in these parks, but I don't call that the same as rejoicing. And he's right, isn't he? I've been to how many receptions and parties, and I love them all. But that's not rejoicing. That's frolicking. It's okay to frolic, but it doesn't draw you into the Advent. That's the lawyer's point. Now he really moves for the stinger. Let's go. Put put him back up on the screen here. The depletion. The depletion of a contemporary recognition of the radically political character of Advent. And my PowerPoint operator who's up, she's a physics major and she's a very bright uh, young lady. Her name is Janet DeWynn. But we were going over this yesterday. She said, oh, Pastor, that's just a lot of big words and it doesn't make sense at all. So let's just hold that little line right there. It's a good point she's making. The depletion of a contemporary recognition of the radically political character of Advent. What is he saying? What's this essay saying? He's saying, listen, we've lost a fresh contemporary remembering 
that the Advent really is political. It's radically political in nature. What does he mean by political? Here's what he means. He says, when Jesus came to earth, because if you could read the whole essay, you'd see this. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't just say, I want to come down here and have some time with my friends on the planet. I'll become one of them. We'll have picnics together. We'll sleep and eat together. This will be great. He didn't come down here just to get close to the human race. He came down here from the kingdom of the Almighty to declare to the kings and nations and rulers and kingdoms of this earth, there is a higher kingdom and you will answer to that higher kingdom one day. It's radically political, his message. When he comes to earth, he challenges all human government systems. But Stringfellow is saying, you know what? We, we've forgotten all of this. It's just kind of, we're frolicking. Now let me read the whole sentence to you. Back on the screen. The depletion of a contemporary recognition of the radically political character of Advent is in large measure. Why have we lost the sense of judgment? It's in large measure occasioned by the illiteracy of church folk about the second advent. And in the mainline churches, the persistent quietism read silence of pastors, preachers, and teachers about the second coming. You're not hearing about the second coming in the, in the mainstream churches anymore. Quiet. Everybody celebrating Advent 1. Not a whisper. Oh, liturgically it gets worked in for a few days. That's it. We give a month and a half to the first Advent and maybe an hour to the second. And when's the last time you heard a sermon on the second coming of Jesus? When was the last time? That's Stringfellow's point. And now he moves in for the, for the stinger. One last sentence. Yet... It is impossible to apprehend either Advent except through the relationship of both Advents. End quote. Isn't that something? Did you catch that? Let me, let me ISO that last sentence and put it on the screen for you. Put it in bold. It is impossible to apprehend either Advent except through the relationship of both Advents. In all ho holiday candor, it makes me wonder aloud this morning, not just about Americans, but about those who call themselves Adventists. Adventists. What's happened to us? Have we inadvertently, and no doubt innocently, but have we inadvertently abandoned the apocalyptic connection between the two Advents, between Christmas and the Second Coming? In that apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy, there is, in an unusual place, the retelling of the Christmas story. And, oh, incontrovertibly, the two Advents are linked together in the Great Controversy. Let me just run a few lines by This is uh, from the Great Controversy. Speaking 2,000 years ago, in the palaces of kings, in the assemblies of philosophers, in the schools of the rabbis. As soon as I saw that phrase, schools of the rabbis, I thought, what is a school of a rabbi? It's a seminary. Sure it is. In the palaces of kings, in the assemblies of philosophers, in the schools of the rabbis, all alike, all are alike, 2,000 years ago, unmindful of the wondrous fact which has filled all heaven with joy and praise that the Redeemer of men and women is about to appear upon the earth. Now notice this line. There is no evidence that Christ is expected and no preparation for the Prince of Life. 
And I thought to myself when I read that line, whoa, hold it, self. If somebody walked through your life right now, if somebody walked through your mind right now, how much evidence would they find that you have this passionate hope in the second advent of Christ? They walk through your congregation. They walk through your seminary. They walk through your institution. How much evidence would they find? Whoa, these are people who believe in the soon coming of Christ. Where is the evidence anymore? Let me put that line again. There is no evidence that Christ is expected and no preparation for the Prince of Life. Is it happening? God forbid. All over again? The sentence goes on. In amazement. The celestial messenger, that would be Gabriel, is about to return to heaven with a shameful tidings when, whoa, he discovers a group of shepherds who are watching their flocks by night and as they gaze into the starry heavens are contemplating the prophecy of a Messiah to come to earth and longing they are for the advent. There it is, the advent of the world's Redeemer. I mean, come on, be honest. That happens to you, doesn't it? Particularly in the winter, a cloudless winter's night here in Michigan. We're away from the city lights here. And you stare up into that silver canopy into those constellations as far as the eye can see. Don't moments like that make you feel God is really near? They do for me. I just, I just like, I'm in His presence now. And in those moments, doesn't your heart well up? And don't you say, Oh, God, when are you coming? When are you coming again to this planet in person? They're looking up this gaggle of shepherds. And they're praying that prayer. All right. Story wrapped up here. Look at this. Here is a company. Oh, Gabriel's so excited. Here's a company that's prepared to receive the heavenly message. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appears. Shoom! There he is, declaring the good tidings of great joy. Celestial glory floods all the plain. And innumerable company of angels is revealed. And as if the joy were too great for one messenger to bring from heaven... A multitude of voices break forth in the anthem which all the nations of the saved shall one day sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to all the human family. But I need to tell you that the quotation doesn't end there. Just like the American lawyer William Stringfellow, Ellen White drives home the very same point that he has made. The quotation ends now in Great Controversy. Oh, what a lesson is this wonderful story of Bethlehem. How it rebukes our unbelief, our pride and self-sufficiency. How it warns us to beware lest by our criminal indifference we also fail to discern the signs of the times and therefore know not the day of our visitation. Wow. Wow. I tell you what, if I could only appeal to those who bear the name Adventists, if I could only appeal to your heart and mind, I would ask, what is the point of commemorating the first Advent? Oh, holy night! If in the same breath we are not passionate about the second advent of this same Christ. It's pointless. Listen, you think about it. 
Without the first advent, the second advent is meaningless. Without the second advent, the first advent is hopeless. Unless we embrace them both, we will understand neither. That's Stringfellow and White's point. Let me put Stringfellow's sentence back up on the screen. It is impossible to apprehend either advent except through the relationship of both advents. Which, by the way, is Gabriel's compelling point to Daniel. He says, hey, Daniel, the Messiah is, is called the Prince of Princes. But when Gabriel shows up to John, he changes the title. Watch this. We'll end with this. Go to, go to the, the Apocalypse. The other student that Gabriel had, the tutorial. Go to the Apocalypse, chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19. Gabriel switches the titles. Prince of Princes to Daniel to John, a new title. Same Jesus. Watch this. Daniel chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open. This is the most spectacular second coming vista in all the apocalypse, bar none. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. White horses were ridden by kings in time of battle. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And his head, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now we know who he is. A robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now here comes the title. Verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Prince of princes, the Christ of the first advent, now returns to earth in the second advent, King of kings. And Lord of Lords. Wow. Truth is, friends, unless we embrace Him as both Prince of Princes and Lord of Lords, we will not know Him as either. It takes the two to make the truth. Let's put it up one more time. Stringfellow and White. It is impossible to apprehend either Advent except through the relationship of both Advents. Let me close now with the Gospel according to Peanuts. You remember Peanuts, the little cartoon, uh, beloved, the late Charles Schultz's beloved cartoon strip. You got Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus and Schroeder and dear Snoopy. I came across this because it's syndicated. He's, 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 he died long ago, but they've syndicated his cartoons. And just a few days ago, I put this up on the refrigerator, but I want to share, share it with you now. Here's the little cartoon. Start up in the, uh, the corner there. Lucy speaking to Charlie Brown. All right. I don't worry about the world coming to an end anymore. Next frame. The way I figure it, the world can't come to an end today because it is already tomorrow in some other part of the world. That's great logic. In fact, she turns to Charlie Brown and says, she says, Isn't that a comforting theory? And Charlie Brown mutters more to himself, I've never felt so comforted in all my life. <laughs> I have a comforting theory for you about the end of the world, and it is this. Jesus is coming soon. That's the theory. 
Jesus is coming soon. And unless we embrace Him as Prince of Princes and Lord of Lords, we will have Him as neither. We must, please, this Christmas, not forget there are two Advents, two titles, one Savior and one Jesus. Oh, come. We're saying it to begin our worship. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Ransom, captive, Israel, this plaintive carol appeals out of the first advent to the second advent. It is the perfect joining of the two. And ransom, captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. I earnestly ask you, this holiday, please keep the two Advents together.